0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 1. This morning is uh, Reformation Sunday, if you saw it in the bulletin, and that does not mean it's a time to celebrate or venerate uh, saints or any, any people really, but rather to celebrate the work of God through men and women that He used to bring about reform and even revival in His church. Though many voices were calling for uh, such a a reviving work, a reform of the church in the Middle Ages, God did a unique work through a German monk named Martin Luther. Luther had grown up in church. He had been striving to live a good life as a monk and then as a a theological teacher. But the the more that he studied the Bible, the more depressed, saddened, even angry at God he became for he was consumed with guilt for his sin. He thought that in order to be right with God, that he needed to strive for the righteousness of God, that he needed to to live a life equal to the righteousness of God himself. And he knew that he could never do that. He worked harder and harder to earn God's love, but only found his sins weighing heavier on his soul. But then he found his way in teaching to Paul's letters and specifically to the letter of the Romans. And there his eyes were opened to see this reality that it is by Christ's righteousness that God will forgive him and save him and bring him to himself. Specifically in Romans one sixteen and one seventeen, Luther's eyes were opened by God to see that he was not expected to live up to God's righteousness in order to be saved, but that God would give his own righteousness to his people by faith. And having seen that truth, having believed that truth, having that truth become precious to him, Luther never blinked in the face of adversity. He went from being a frightened, scared monk who could hardly hold the cup of wine and the Lord's Supper to a bold reformer. Historian Michael Reeves says this, Luther faced the wrath of the emperor of Germany, the Pope, burning at the stake and the prospect of hell ever after if he was wrong in his beliefs. To all this, he managed to reply, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Luther was not being arrogant in that, but what he was saying is quite the opposite. He had become so captivated, so captivated by the power of God in the gospel to take sinners who deserve hell and to count Christ's righteousness as their own and so give them freedom from sin, forgiveness of sin, to bring them into the family of God that he couldn't turn away. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't unlearn what his eyes had now seen. And so it was with that gospel message that he desperately clung to in times of trouble. The saving message of God's grace to the work of Christ was his shelter, his fortress that allowed him to endure difficulty and experience a changed life. So why are we talking about this this Sunday? Well, because it's actually on October 31st in the year 1517 that Luther kind of got the ball rolling with all of this. Um, somewhat innocuously thinking he was nailing 95 points of theological debate the church needed to have in light of this rediscovery of the gospel. He was branded a heretic and what should have been that small tinking of a nail on the door of the church became a sound of thunder that echoed on throughout history even to today. It was then that the heads of the religious authorities in Rome turned and peasants in the cities looked up. Everything changed by Luther's renewed call to the gospel. He was joined by many, many others across the world who were beginning to see the same things by God's grace. And what's interesting is that just as Luther's personal revival, which spread to church-wide reformation, began in the book of Romans. One commentator says, most if not all of the great revivals and reformations in the history of the church have been directly related to the book of Romans. Now, why is that? Why would Romans have such a profound and powerful effect? I believe quite simply because nowhere else in any of Paul's writings does he so thoroughly present the glory of God and the gospel of Christ. That is the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. In Christ, the very righteousness of God is put on display for the world and made available to those who turn toward him in faith. And Paul lays out not only the theology, how we are to understand how that works, how that is possible, and how God has planned it from eternity past, but also the implications of what that means for our lives. How ought we to respond to the gospel? Having responded in faith, how then are we to live? It is, if you ever want to know what it means to live the gospel-centered life, it is the book of Romans that you should turn. So the question we want to ask this morning is, as we begin this new sermon series on the book of Romans, why are we doing this now? Uh, we were in the middle of a series on the Psalms. Why are we stopping? Well, honestly, it's been largely driven by my upcoming transition <laughs> From pastoral ministry to missions. And it's quite possible that in a decade or more, I might return to pastoral ministry, but there's no guarantee of that. And uh, when you begin to realize that uh, what has been Uh, seemingly your whole life, really just about 13 years of your life, a week in and week out, preparing to stand behind the sacred desk and present the Word of God to God's people, hopefully in a way that feeds them and edifies them and corrects them and encourages them, Uh, you may never get to do that again. So how are you going to end? What what are you going to finish on? Well, what, what needs to be said that you haven't got around to saying yet? And so among all the many books that I thought of, um, and if you want to know what those are, you can come ask me sometime. uh, Romans kind of set out there in the front as the obvious choice. Now, to go through that in a, in a normal way that I would kind of paragraph by paragraph, uh, I probably wouldn't make it by, by June 1st or maybe even earlier if God so brings someone uh, more quickly. And so uh, one of the things that I thought about doing was something I had planned to do for a long time, and that was not just preaching Romans once and being done, but actually preaching Romans uh, maybe two or three times while I was here at Crossway. Uh, one in kind of an overview way, preaching a chapter a week, sixteen weeks, sixteen chapters, and then later coming back to it in a few years and going a little bit, um, a little bit more lengthy time, perhaps fifty sermons, paragraph by paragraph. Well, it just seemed like an ideal time to go for that overview, uh, to, to to help us to see the big picture of what Romans is about, specifically the flow of thought. Because remember, Paul didn't just say, "Okay, chapter one." And start writing. No, no, this is one big long letter, and so Paul says, "Here I am. I'm an apostle. Here's what. Uh, here's what I'm about. Here's why I want to come see you, and here's what I want to say to you." And it just goes on and on and on and on for 16 chapters. And so, what what is his point? Uh, how does he explain his point? Uh, what does he want the Romans to do? What, what does God want us to do? That's what I want us to see through this book. Some of you that were in our community groups a few years ago and read Knowing God by J.I. Packer with us will remember his comments on the letter of Romans, maybe. He says that often uh, many Christians miss the significance of Romans because they only land on a specific verse or a specific passage without considering that whole argument of the letter. They never read all the way through Romans. They never thought all the way through Romans. And so they have little passages, Romans 8, 28, and, and, and uh, the, ro- the passages that follow out the Romans' road, plan of salvation, and other things. He says, but... That's like somebody approaching Mount Everest and reaching the top because they've been dropped off by a helicopter rather than working at the bottom and going up like Hillary and Tensing did with all the experiences that go, go along with it. Well, I, you know, by virtue of the fact that we're going uh, a chapter at a time, we're not starting at the bottom and going all the way up, but at the very least, the helicopter is dropping us off at the halfway point all right? It's enough that we're going to get a better appreciation for all of those favorite passages that come out of Romans and how they fit into the overall picture. John Piper called this book the greatest letter ever written, and the question is, how does it begin? How does Paul set the tone for everything that is to follow? That's what we want to see this morning. So follow along as I begin reading Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May God bless the reading of His inerrant and inspired word. Much like the theme of the letter itself, this first chapter is all about righteousness. Namely, the righteousness of God in Christ. How it is presented and what we do with it. First, we see that this righteousness is preached. We see righteousness preached in verses 1 through 15. Now, the introduction that Paul gives of himself to the Romans uh, is far longer than and more involved, frankly, than any other introduction in his letters. And in part, that's because, uh, as you see from the extra kind of bulletin insert that has an overview of Romans on one side and kind of the timelines, you know, what's happening in the New Testament world and in history when this is being written, uh, he's in the midst of playing the church at the city of Corinth. And he's writing about AD 70 to um, the Romans, and he's never been there before. And so this, they don't have any familiarity with him other than by reputation. He doesn't have any, any, any uh, friends there specifically. And so he's writing a longer introduction so that they will know who he is, what he is about, what he's passionate about, and what he hopes to accomplish with their help. In doing so, he introduces himself as an apostle for the gospel, an apostle for the gospel. Now, the fact that Paul was called to be an apostle is nothing short of amazing if you've read... The rest of the Bible. You'll know that at one time he was a Jewish man zealous for the religion of his fathers. He helped hunt down, imprison, even kill Christians, believing that they were blasphemers against the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true and living God. But as you can read about in Acts 9, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, risen from the dead, struck down this man Saul with a blinding light and revealed himself to be both Lord and Savior. And by the grace of a sovereign God, this persecutor became a Christian. He went from despising Christ, he says in verse 1, to being a servant of Christ. More than that, he embraced the calling he had from the risen Christ to be an apostle. An official messenger sent into the world with the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the second thing going to the Gentile world. He took on a more Greek name. Saul became Paul, and he went on mission for the gospel. Mission for the gospel. Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. More specifically in verse 5, he says that he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That is, faith that comes in obedience. To the call of the gospel to trust in Christ. So initial faith. When we preach the gospel, there is always an appeal at the end. It's not just, hey, here's this news. Isn't that, isn't that great? No, it's here's this news and now believe and be saved. There is a call for an obedient response of faith in light of what God has done through his son, Jesus. But it's not just that kind of faith. It's also the obedience of faith that comes from a lifelong walking with Christ. The fruit of our faith is obedience. So how do you, the Apostle John lays this out beautifully in his first letter. If you want to know whether or not you were saved or someone else was saved, look at their life, at least in an immediate sense. Over the long haul, have they sought to be obedient to Christ? If yes, then it is evidence of their faith. Why did Paul go on this mission? Why did he seek the obedience of faith from among all nations? He says it was for the sake of his name, that is, Christ's name among all the nations. Paul makes disciples of Christ for the glory of Christ. Paul is seeking the fame of Jesus, not fame for himself. Now, now what is this gospel message? Well, astonishingly, again, Paul believed it was the message that God promised beforehand, verse 2, that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Why is that astonishing? Because before he would have denied it he would have heard all the claims about Jesus and he would have said, blasphemy, liar, you are not the true Messiah. You are not the one prophesied that we've been waiting for. You rightly deserve to be condemned and crucified. And yet now he says, Jesus was crucified as the Messiah in fulfillment of all of God's promises. And more than that, he was raised from the dead of which I am a witness And now I put my faith in Him, believing He is the promised Savior King. Thus the gospel, He says in verses 4 and 5, is all about God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. This is the Savior that sinful humanity needs. The eternal divine Son of the living God who took on flesh according to the promises that God made through His prophets in the Old Testament as a savior who died for his people, but was raised to life by the spirit of God and holiness. Now, Paul will later unpack how Jesus can be a savior to sinful humanity through his death and resurrection, beginning in chapter 3 and going through chapters 4 and 5 especially. But notice that Paul wasn't the only preacher of this gospel. As an apostle, he is also con- concerned that others be with him in partnership for the gospel. Partnership. For the gospel. In verse 7, Paul acknowledges that he is writing to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That is, the believers who make up the church. Paul not only wished them to know grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ, but he says that he's thankful for them. He's thankful because they have put their faith in Christ and that faith is now proclaimed in all the world. Now, this actually begins to show one of the reasons Paul is writing to them. Now, you notice in contrast to many other uh, messages and series that we did, we, we didn't lay out all the facts about the letter. Why is he writing? What, what all he, because we see it in these verses. And here is kind of uh, step one, as it were. One of the reasons that Paul is writing. In the, in the background of every book of the Bible, remember, is history. Okay? that The Bible is not somehow, um, you know, disconnected from everything else that, that's going on in the world, right? So, um you know, if you are of that persuasion this past week, uh, you had some kind of delight in the fact that uh, Marty McFry f- finally came to our time zone and Back to the Future, right? 2015. Uh, and, and if you remember in that movie, there were kind of like two timelines, right? Uh, something happened and now you had normal time and now you had this alternate timeline and it was all crazy. That's not how the Bible works. Everything going on in the biblical storyline is happening concurrent with ancient, and, with ancient history. It's all happening together. It's all intermixed. And so that's what part of that outline is there uh, in in your insert is to show you what's going on, not just in the Bible, but what's going on in history. And what we know going on in the background of the passage is that this Roman church was likely started by Jewish believers who heard the gospel of Christ at Pentecost by Peter's preaching. They were there in Jerusalem for the high holy days. Then they left, went back to Rome, and they continued to meet as a Christian church. And through their witness and the spread of the gospel, there were also Gentiles that came in to be part of that church. But then, because of political unrest with non-Christian Jews, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews out of the city of Rome. He he, he said, there's this great disturbance, and I'm tired of it, and all the Jews got to go out. And now that didn't just mean... The Jews involved with the disturbance. Every Jew, even the Christian Jews, gone from Rome. And so suddenly here is, this, here is this church that immediately shrinks down and is made up only of Gentiles. So you get Gentile believers who now need to have Gentile deacons, Gentile elders, and they continue to preach the gospel and get more and more Gentile disciples that come in. A few years later, the tensions cooled. All of the Jews began coming back, including the Jewish Christians. But suddenly there is tension in the church at Rome. Those that had been in the majority when they left are now in the minority when they come back because the gospel has flourished among the Gentiles. The church is far larger now and it's composed of of all Gentiles and they are the ones in leadership. Moreover, these likely law-observing Jews, they would have ate kosher and other things like that, were now thrown together with Gentiles who knew they did not need to nor did they follow the kosher laws the kind of ethnic distinctions in the old covenants. So you can imagine someone who is kosher sitting down to eat with someone who is not kosher knowing that they can't even have contact with him. How do you have Christian fellowship? There's tension there. And yet what does Paul say? Their faith is being proclaimed to all the world. Everyone knows that they're Christians in Rome, that there are Jews and Gentiles both who are Christians. And Paul is wanting them to ask this question of themselves, what will your testimony be? When your faith is known in all the nations, what kind of faith will it be? Will it be one that highlights the power of the gospel to bring down dividing walls of hostility created by sinful cultural mindsets and traditions? Or or will it be a testimony that says, Christ is no different than any other God and Christianity no different than any other religion. It has no power to unify the various peoples of this world? Those questions are incredibly relevant today as we think with great urgency about what it means for Christians to be white and black and Asian and Hispanic. And how do we come together and display unity as the body of Christ? Can Christ unite His people? Is that power of the gospel evident in our church today? That's his concern in writing to the Roman church. He wants them to be unified, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the name of Christ among the nations, that he would be glorified and lifted up. Paul goes on to say that he prays for the Romans. Now, I want you to think about this. We don't have time to chase this down, but just make a note, think about this, and see if something changes Uh, in your your normal habits over the next few weeks. Paul's never been to this church, remember that. Never been to Rome, doesn't have anybody there, has no connection to this church, but he prays for them. In fact, he says it is without ceasing that he remembers them always in his prayers. So, so, So here is this church that he's aware of, he's never been to, he doesn't know the leadership, but he is always constantly praying for them. And he keeps asking that somehow by God's will he may visit them. This gets to another reason that Paul is writing this letter to the Roman Christians. Notice he says that he wants to impart some spiritual gift to them by going to them. You say, I thought spiritual gifts were given by God's spirit. Well, yeah, but don't get too technical about it. Uh, That's one of the problems that we've had in the last 20 years or so is that we've become... Uh, and it's much less of an issue today than it was back in, the, back in the 80s and the 90s. We become like super hyper obsessive about spiritual gifts, and you got to do this ridiculous inventory and answer these questions, and somehow out pops your gift, and you better go and do that, or else you're disobedient to God. Loved ones, read for a second. It's not how, it's not how gifts work, okay? And here specifically, Paul identifies the kind of spiritual gift that he wants to give in verse 12, a mutual encouragement by one another's faith. So think about this. When you seek to spend time with God's people, talk about edifying things, speak about what God is doing in your life, maybe even quote a verse or two that you read that week, you are imparting a spiritual gift to that person. You are encouraging their faith. From that fellowship that Paul is seeking to have with them, he's also wanting partnership he's hinting here at what he makes explicit in chapter 15 namely paul is going to rome seeking financial help from them he wants to go and be with them and for they to see firsthand his ministry and then for him to be sent off with financial support and frankly given my own trajectory and calling i have a greater appreciation for paul in that regard paul was supported in his work by god's people both in churches he started and in others that he had no connection with like in rome that's how he carried out his calling, through the generous and sacrificial giving of God's people. That prayer and financial support Paul hopes will allow him to reap harvest among the Romans. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What does that mean? Isn't he writing to Romans who are saved? Yes, but that doesn't mean they don't need the preaching of the gospel. You ever wonder why you come here week in and week out and we're, we're talking about all kinds of different things from all parts of the Bible, but what do we always talk about? the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read it, we sing it, we pray it. Why? Because that is the lifeblood of the Christian life. So there's something you hear once, you say, okay, I'm done with that, I got it. No, we come back again and again and again because abiding in Christ, trusting in his work is what gives us confidence and power to say no to sinful desires, to press on in maturity, to joyfully obey God who saved us. So Paul says, I am eager to preach to you, to encourage you, but also to reap a harvest from among you. To, to, to land in Rome and to partner with you so that the gospel goes out and all kinds of Gentiles, barbarians, Greeks, and more than that, slave and free and even Jews will come to faith and become a part of your church. So if we could summarize, this is why Paul is writing Romans based upon what we've seen. It may or may not be worth writing down. Paul is writing to the Romans to introduce himself before he visits them defending the gospel that unifies Jews and Gentiles, hoping the Romans themselves will be unified and thereby becoming partners with him in his mission to the Gentiles, all for the sake of the name of Christ, that his glory might be magnified in them and among the nations. Why? For in Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's what we see in verses 16 through 17. We saw righteousness preached and now we see righteousness revealed. We have uh, with us some of our own partners in ministry this morning. We're thankful for them, Pastor June and Ramon. If you ever get an email from Pastor June at the bottom, one big verse... Romans 1.16. If you ever buy an album from Reach Records, if you're into Christian hip-hop, emblazoned somewhere will be a big 1.16, referencing Romans 1.16. These verses are not just popular, but they are important for this reason. Verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1 are essentially the theme of the letter. This is is what the book is about. You get those verses, you're going to understand the letter. Paul is summarizing everything that he said, and he is pivoting to talk about everything that's going to come after that. Paul begins verse 16 by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we might expect him to say that. He's an apostle, right? What else is he going to say? You know, sometimes I'm I'm a little fearful when it comes to the gospel. I mean, that's just not what we think we're going to hear. But it should not just be something blase that we pass over. I mean, think about his life. Because of preaching the gospel, what did he experience? He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Damascus and Berea. He was laughed at in Athens. He was considered foolish in Corinth. He was declared to be a blasphemer and a lawbreaker in Jerusalem and nearly stoned to death in Lystra. Why? All for preaching the gospel. But none of those experiences deter him. None of those experiences make him ashamed of the gospel. And to be honest, that would not have been easy. When archaeologists excavated the ancient ruins of Rome, they found a painting mocking Christianity. They found Roman graffiti mocking Christianity. It was a picture of a slave bowing down before a cross with a donkey on it. Below was this caption, "Alexamenos worships his God. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ portrayed as a donkey in Roman graffiti. You can imagine the kind of things that were talked about and said and done to those that they thought worshipped this donkey. But for Paul and the early Christians, the cross was not something to be embarrassed about. It was not something to be ashamed of. It was something to be cherished. Because the gospel we see is power for salvation. It is power for salvation. That's what Paul says in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel for, because, here's why I'm not ashamed. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is why Paul is passionate to tell everyone he possibly can about the gospel. While he doesn't really care what other people think or do to him, as long as he keeps preaching Christ because he knows it is that message, that good news that brings salvation to sinners. In fact, no one gets saved, he will say, in chapter 10, apart from hearing the gospel of Christ. Now, hearing doesn't necessarily mean it has to go through your ears, but it means you must encounter the gospel in some way. We just heard, if you were at the, uh, and, and, and some, many of you weren't, we wish you were there. If you've been at the men's conference yesterday, you heard about a guy who sought to discredit the Bible, and he just started reading through the gospels, and guess what? He read the gospel of Christ, and God saved him. God brought him to faith and forgiveness of sins. Whether we preach or share, discuss or print or text or email in any way we convey the gospel message, people will get saved because the salvation of God is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon Him. So no one gets saved apart from hearing the gospel, but when the gospel is preached, people hear it, they will get saved. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed, but I go forth in confidence and preach and preach and preach. In the gospel, God breaks down every barrier and brings all kinds of people (coughs) to trust in His Son. Years ago, the ministry Campus Crusade for Christ put together an evangelistic tool called the Jesus Film. It's a film that portrays the gospel of Luke and they are able to overdub it or at least put up print and different things. So this film can go all over the place, all kinds of languages. And people will set up the film and, and allow these people where the gospel has never been to see the story of Jesus visibly portrayed. And then they go through and explain what it is that they're seeing. And many, many years ago, when there was a terrorist group called the Shining Path in Peru came upon a missionary couple traveling out to a village to show this film. They pulled them over. They hijacked them. The couple was very fearful for their lives, but instead of killing them, they just decided to take all their money, take all their equipment, including the film projector. As they were leaving, almost as an afterthought, probably with a little bit of vitriol in his voice, the husband said, hey, if you're going to take the other equipment, you might as well take the film reels too. And that's exactly what they did. Sometime later, one of the terrorists found those missionaries again and said, In board, and we watched that Jesus film over and over and over again. And that formal terrorist became a Christian and is now serving as a missionary himself. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. But that is key faith, belief, trust in Christ. It's not just automatic. And thus the gospel points us not just to the power for salvation, but also faith for salvation. Faith for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The way God uh, saves reveals His righteousness. That is God's own righteousness. God is not shown to be an unrighteous God the way that He saves. In other words, we might think, well, the gospel shows God's love for sinners. It does. It might show God's grace for sinners. It does. It might show God's mercy towards sinners. It does. But it also shows his righteous character. Because God doesn't just say, as we we might be hopeful or even tempted to believe, well, you know, I just love you so much, I'm just going to forget about the fact that you've sinned. I'm going to forget about all the bad things that you've done. I'm just going to say, come on, just, just come into heaven. Come on. It's all right. Just come in. God can't do that and be God. Because God is gracious, God is merciful, God is loving, but God is also holy and He's just. If someone commits a crime, someone must be punished. Now, I know the U.S. government doesn't think that, but God does because He is just and they are not. And He has two options. He can either punish us for our sins or He can send a Savior to take the punishment for us. And that's what he did in Christ. But we still need to hear of Christ and put our confidence in him. We must trust him. We must put our faith in him that that is true. That there is a God, that he sent his son, that we are sinful and we need a savior. And when we do that, God says that he will forgive us. In chapter 3, God judges our sins in Christ, Paul says and completely satisfies his wrath towards us. No one is ever saved by trying to lead a righteous life, but the righteousness of Christ is given to those who believe. And Paul wants the Romans to see this is no new idea. He wants the Jews to know that, look, you know this is true. This is all the way back to the Old Covenant. He quotes from the prophet Habakkuk and says, the righteous shall live by faith. God has never saved anyone based upon what they do. It's never about works or earning righteousness. It is about God's righteousness on display. Being holy and just and loving and all of that towards sinners. What does that mean for us? At least two things. First of all, it means we, 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 can, never, we can never allow ourselves to change the gospel message. In a minute, we're going to talk about how it is tempting to do that in this day and age. But here's the thing. If the gospel is what brings salvation, you lose the gospel, you lose salvation. Second, we who have faith must commit ourselves to sharing that gospel so that others can come to faith. It it is not sufficient for us to say, I'm okay, doesn't matter about anybody else. That's antithetical to the gospel. Both what Jesus teaches in the parables and what Paul explicitly says and what we see in the life displayed in the book of Acts. That, That if you truly understand the gospel, if you're truly a Christian, that can never be our apathetic attitude. It is one of generosity and sacrifice in all manner of ways by which we seek to see this gospel be made known by all kinds of people. Not hiding away, not ashamed of him, but clear and bold and loving in our preaching. And all of that is made urgent to us when we remember that in this world, God's righteousness is often dishonored. That's the last thing we see in verses 18 through 23. Righteousness dishonored. 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 Beginning at verse 18, Paul makes a transition that will carry us through chapter 3. It begins by showing us why we should not be surprised by God's wrath against sin. His wrath against sin. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's precisely here that many balk at Christianity. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say when I've sought to explain the gospel to them that God is going to judge people, they just kind of sit and they nod, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they say, well, you know, I just think God is loving. So do I. That's why I'm talking to you. He's loved me and He loves you, but you've got to believe. And they just cannot get their mind around the fact that, you know what? God's holy. He's going to judge you for your sins. Now, why they can't get that, I don't know, because we have parents, if they're loving, who punish us for our sins. We have a justice system, if it's at all just, that punishes us for our sins. Why wouldn't God who made the whole thing be just and punish us for our sins? But that's not even in the world. Sometimes that's in the church. In his commentary, John MacArthur points out that some years ago, an article in the Times of London reported that 14 church study groups in Woodford, England, looked at the Old Testament Psalms and concluded that 84 of them, 84 of the Psalms in the Bible, were, quote, not fit for Christians to sing. They reason that the wrath and vengeance reflected in those psalms were not compatible with Christian gospel, the Christian gospel of love and grace. Certainly God is not less than a loving and gracious God, but He is certainly more than that as well. I'm not, frankly, I'm not interested in what you think God is like. I'm interested in what God says He's like in His Word. That's why we have the Bible. It is God revealing Himself to us. He's saying, this is what I'm like, this is what I require, this is what I have done for you through the offering of my Son. He makes clear that when his righteous character encounters the unrighteousness of men, the result is wrath towards sin. Now, what do we do to deserve wrath? First of all, we deserve wrath because of our willful ignorance. Because of our willful ignorance. Paul says that in their unrighteousness, the ungodly suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Say, so what about that man on the island who's never heard? Without excuse. Because what, is, what can be known about God is plain and clear to all. But we remain willfully ignorant. We suppress that truth. We deny that what we see is there. We turn away from the fact that God is existent, that He is powerful, that he deserves our worship. Today, atheists present themselves as those who are superior in intellect. We're, we're, we're above that stone age thinking of religion. But Paul makes clear atheism doesn't come from being smarter. It comes from being a denier of the truth. More than that, as sinners, we are marked by ingratitude. ingratitude. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them. That's the great design of our life. That's why we were made. The reason we have a heartbeat right now, we have lungs uh, uh, filled with air, and it's to give God glory, to magnify His greatness and His goodness by thanking Him for all the things that He has given to us. But what do we do in our sin? We dishonor Him. Instead of thanking Him, we come up with all kinds of other crazy ideas about how the world runs. I was just reading uh, this week about the Eastern idea of feng shui, where your furniture in your room, angled at the wrong place, might mean you lose your business or your love life collapses. Really? How is that obvious from creation? Or what about that odd blend of science fiction and religion that L. Ron Hubbard left to the world called Scientology? We're we're seeking to return to alien beings who have come and given us superpowers by clearing our thoughts of negative attitudes? That's what they teach. (sighs) It's no wonder Paul can say that sinful humanity became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sometimes that foolishness even leads to a belief in gods of our own design and creation. That's the third reason that Paul gives for God's wrath, our idolatry. Sin is seen in our idolatry. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It might be literal gods who are modeled after things in this world, worshiped in the temples designed by human hands. But Martin Luther was right when he said, whatever your heart clings to and relies on is your God. Think about that. Whatever your heart clings to and relies on is your God. So is it money? Is it safety? Is it your political ideas? Is it your family? Is it having things the way you want them, when you want them? Is it ease of life? Is it comfort? Is it a good retirement? Is it a relationship? Having a spouse? Whatever it is, whatever you are clinging to, And rely upon, that is your God. That's what the Bible teaches. Ignorance, ingratitude, idolatry, that's what sin looks like. And that's why it deserves God's wrath. But notice Paul also describes the results of sin. The results of sin in verses 24 through 32. Because of our sin, we are given over to dishonorable passions. That's what Paul says. We're given over to dishonorable passions. Notice his argument. Paul says... Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the idols of the heart, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And he elaborates in verses 26 and 27 by saying that God gave sinful humanity over to dishonorable passions, whereby both men and women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, today, of course, this issue is hugely explosive. And by virtue of the fact that we're well close to being done. There's no way we can adequately deal with this. Not because uh, we can't or we shouldn't, but we, we just don't have the time. But let me just say this. Apart from any political or social pressure, just think about the context of Paul's argument for a minute. He will go on to point out many other examples of wicked behavior. Young people, did you notice that among all these wicked behaviors, one of the ones that he lists as worthy of God's wrath that reveals a debased mind and a wicked heart is disobedience to parents? Don't take that lightly. Because if you're going to disobey your mom and dad for your life, guess what? You're going to disobey God. That's how we learn how to love and respect and honor and obey God. It's by the parents that He gives us. And sometimes I know, young people, parents are crummy because I am one. I'm a parent. And I know we can be uh, complete idiots sometimes. And we don't always get it right. But that does not alleviate you of responsibility of being disobedient. That's what the Bible says. Why single out this issue here? Why single out homosexuality? The whole thrust of his argument has been the rejection of God and his glory. And what more clearly shows the inversion of God's good design and creative authority than homosexual sin? When God created the world, he said to every living creature, including you and me, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Those that engage in homosexuality can't do that. I mean, just on a biological level. I mean, if, if you are here and you say, "I don't believe this Bible stuff fine. Are you a Darwinian evolutionist? How does life continue if all creatures are homosexual in nature? It doesn't work. That's not the way God has designed creation to be, and it is one of the most obvious examples of rebellion against God's design. That's why Paul points it out. It's not because it's, it, it, it's so terrible of a sin that it's unforgivable. No. it is forgivable. Paul writes the Corinthians. He talks about homosexuality and he says, and su-, among many other sins, and he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were justified by faith in Christ. Homosexuality is not an illness. It's not a choice. Paul says it's the fruit of idolatry. But even idolatry is forgivable. Paul was an idolater. He worshiped his own sense of righteousness before God. He thought he worshipped the one true God, but he really worshipped himself. And you know what? God only forgave him for his murderous, zealous intentions, but he made him an apostle of Christ. This morning, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, don't, don't, don't hide it. Don't try and stuff it away and, and, be, and be fearful. Um, yeah, not, not every Christian is, is, is going to have the same response, but I guarantee you the leadership of this church is going to say, like any other sin, it's forgivable in Christ. And so let us minister to you and and pray for you. Paul says, Paul says they ought to come to Christ because of the forgiveness and the freedom that we have. Sin results not only in dishonorable passions, but also a debased mind, a debased mind. Paul says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice, full of envy, verder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Even worse in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, those that practice such things deserve to die. They did not only do them, but gave approval to those who practice them. In other words, God says that we instinctively know that our sin is offensive. And when we do all these other things, We know that we deserve to die because of them. But we don't even just say, but I'm going to do what I want to do. We applaud those who do the same. We exalt evil and say, look at that, how awesome that is. In an age and day when we may be tempted to doubt the need to be exclusive in our belief, pressured by the world to think that all religions are the same, or to be embarrassed about the Bible's teaching that there is such a thing called sin and it deserves God's wrath, We should remember Paul's own experience. What else could change a religious zealot determined to wipe out Christianity, much like a member of ISIS today, to one who actually loves Christ and his church? What could change him from one who would tear his robes at the hearing of the gospel to giving his life to preach the gospel? It's not without reason that Paul could say, believe, and pin an entire letter around these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Friends and loved ones, that is our only hope before God, the righteousness of God in Christ. And that gospel deserves to be preached to all nations, not just for the salvation of sinners, though that is crucial, we want that but that God might be rightly glorified and worshipped by all people. Father, that's our prayer this morning. And as we consider all that Paul has said in Romans 1, may it come down to this, where are we with you? Do we know you because we know your Son and we've put our faith in Him? Father, at the end of the day, all we have, all anyone has is Christ. So may we know Him May we trust Him. May we love Him and obey Him. And may we speak of Him whenever we can. In response to this message, let's stand and sing, All I have is Christ.